Revolution. I can't get no call to action, but I try and I try and I try and I try. Hello and welcome to Call to Action the go-to podcast for anyone trying to make sense of the world of marketing, advertising and beyond. In an industry that is a minefield of utter bollocks, we aim to capture our heroes and allies from the front line to have a chinwag with. It's like Pokemon Go, with the single but vital exception that it's not a short-term bandwagon of shite. It's brought to you by Gasp and I'm Giles Edwards, co-founder and MD. Today, I've caught Shalina Jan Mohammed. Often fueled by a good coffee, as she is now, Shalina is the best-selling author of Love in a Headscarf, a memoir about growing up as a British Muslim woman, and is also the Vice President of Ogilvy Islamic Marketing, the world's first bespoke consultancy for building brands with Muslim audiences. Furthermore, she is an established commentator on Muslim social and religious trends, writing for the likes of the Daily Telegraph, The Guardian and the BBC and was named one of the world's 500 most influential Muslims, and also one of the UK's 100 most powerful Muslim women. Shalina says, the more varied both the people in the organisation, but also the people we're talking to are, the better the quality of your creativity. Welcome to the show, Shalina. Hi, Charles. Hi, everyone. Right, seven quick-fire questions. I'm worried you got a peek there. Tea or coffee? Coffee. Book or Facebook? Both. Fact or fiction? Fact. London or Oxford? Oh, that's very tough. Uh, London. <laughs> Bali or Lombok? Lombok. Nice. Motorola or Apple iPhone? Oh, that's tough. I have an iPhone, but I worked at Motorola. Mm, that was an unfair question. It was. The Guardian or The Telegraph? I write for both. <laughs> so both. Uh, so, Shalina, what was your first ever job? And um, what was your first job in marketing? Um, well, my first ever paid job was at my school library in my sixth form, helping the librarian during the summer holidays reorganise the books. And I learned this really interesting fact, which is your books should only take up two thirds of your shelf and one third should remain free. I don't apply that at home. My, my bookshelves are completely overflowing. Yeah. Um, and I got paid six pounds an hour for this. And I bought a handbag with the money at the end. Nice. I don't know why. But it was a nice brown <laughs> leather satchel. Um, my first real job was actually a marketing job. Okay. So I got recruited out of university to join a marketing trainee scheme for a company called Mercury Communications, who people of a certain age will know, but you are furrowing your eyebrows, so clearly not. Um, and that was the first telecoms company that competed with BT when the market was liberalised. So I got to do lots of really interesting things. I learned about the different aspects of the broader world of marketing. I did consumer marketing, I did pricing, product development and strategy. And then I went on to set up the company's first internet product mm. because the week that I arrived, the MD of consumer marketing said to me, Shalina, we've heard of this thing called the internet. There is a computer on the sixth floor. Would you like to go and find out if we should do anything with it? And, uh, and thus my career developed into an internet product manager. I looked at broadband, I looked at uh, ASPs, which were a thing then. Mm. And then that eventually sort of snowballed into working at Vodafone and at Motorola looking at tech and product marketing. 
Okay. I was actually going to ask you if that quote was true, because I've read the quote, there's something called the internet, there's a computer upstairs, can you go and find out? It absolutely it is. is. And what did you find? So how, did you, how did you feed back to him? What did you conclude? It was a her, actually. A her, sorry. That yeah. Was a, that so was a good, wicked presumption. Yeah, so all the way back then we had a, a female consumer marketing MD, and I went up on the sixth floor and I had the archetypal webmaster. He was very tall and he was very geeky and he wore glasses, but he was brilliant. And we sat on this at this computer and we dialed up a modem on 14.4K and it played the little beeps. And we concluded that my recommendation was that this would be a fantastic product for small businesses. Because along with consumers, we looked at small businesses and it was a great idea. And we built a website that would help small businesses get themselves connected. And then that turned into developing the dial-up internet service. And I recommended that we should take off the subscription fee, which was basically the main barrier to entry, which we did. The company was a little bit nervous because nobody had ever taken the subscription fee away and just let you dial in and pay a per minute charge. So they didn't want to go big. And it was the week that FreeServe from Dixon's was announced um, and they went big on their marketing and we did not go big on our marketing. And they basically cleaned up the market, even though we had the better, more reliable product. And that was my first big lesson in marketing. If you're going to create a great product, tell everybody about it. Yeah. So then how did the internet become more significant from that point onwards in your role? So I was the internet product manager, so it was my job to make sure that it worked and that we had the right pricing and that it was starting to be integrated into the other products that we have. And that was a big job in and of itself to start with. And I decided after a few years of that, that actually I was part of the cable and wireless network. I wanted to go abroad and try out what it might be like in a different market. And the company had a great share of business based in the Middle East. And and that was a region that really interests me. So I went out to Bahrain and they were going through a similar process that the UK had gone through, which was to liberalise the market. So I went over there to help support their product teams. And I think the biggest challenge I found there was we were thinking about how to have products developed to suit different consumer segments, except their billing system could only ever have one tariff. Mm. So that was the biggest challenge that I faced. How do you understand who your consumers are and create variation in your products when you can't actually do anything in your back-end system. So Mm. that was trying to square the circle of what you're saying to consumers versus what the product you actually have Um, in a place where it was very kind of government-oriented, very legacy. So Mm. that was a whole different experience. As a person going out to do a secondment in a different country, absolutely amazing and fantastic and really gave me an insight into what the region was like and some of the different kind of struggles that you have with different kind of companies. Mm. And so how long did you stay there? I was there for a year. Okay. Um, And then came back home and then did something completely crazy, which is just decide to go back to university and and become a mature student. Amazing. Um, So I have quite an unorthodox career so I started uh, I started my undergrad degree at Oxford studying law so I was the dream for my parents I was going to become an Oxford lawyer <laughs> and then it all went wrong <laughs> well it all went right for the advertising industry um, and, and um, you know I do wonder what it would have been like to be an Oxford lawyer I don't terrible, know the answer to terrible. that I can't work out if it would have been worse for me or the other lawyers um, 
But I think one of the things I discovered very latterly in my life, which somehow nobody had spotted, was that I I love creativity mm. and I love craft. And in particular, I love writing. And when I look back at my kind of teen years, I actually did quite a lot of writing. And I think some of it was quite good, but nobody noticed. Mm. So I started off by being a lawyer and then I was like, oh, Oxford lawyers, not sure about them. Did you practice law then? No, after a year, I decided to switch and do psychology and philosophy. And then I went on to do marketing. So it just goes to show kids, you can have quite a varied career in lots of interests. Yeah. Um, So I had 10 years in marketing and product marketing, uh, went away for a year abroad, came back, became a mature student. So I did my first degree at Oxford and then came back and did my degree at SOAS. So I've kind of been at both ends. and, And that was something I did for a while and then I went to work at Motorola which was you know an incredible experience working on the Razer working on the first ever phone with iTunes on it so the precursor mm. to the iPhone which was incredible the Razer had quite a cult following too didn't it oh the Razer sold Still millions does. and millions they're, they're about to re- yeah. relaunch it um, but I think for me that the big experience was working with Apple and getting the iTunes app onto our phone mm. which as I said was the precursor to the iPhone so that was really really exciting and then and then sort of my personal life took a bit of a turn uh, because sadly 9-11 happened the war on terror was announced July 7th happened in the UK in 2005 and tech wise blogging became a thing mm. which seems like a really long time ago now but that was a way that if you wanted to say something about what was happening in the world, you didn't have to write to a newspaper editor and ask permission to be published because, for example, I was a no-name. So somebody who had some thoughts that the news coverage and politicians weren't doing a very good job of talking about what was happening and all the spokespeople that were asked to comment were neither what it felt to me like to be a young British Muslim woman or had anything insightful really to say. And so Mm. I started my blog. And actually, one of the things I found really nerve-wracking was the idea that I would write something and other people would read it. (laughs) It sounds really crazy in hindsight. And so I remember my poor husband, I'd sort of draft a 500-word just little blog entry and I'd be like, is it okay to publish that? Am I going to be embarrassed? And he would very patiently read it and he gave me confidence in my voice. And so we would publish it. And this was well before social media. So if somebody wanted to share what you'd written, they'd have to email it. Mm. And so this kind of gathered a bit of a following and ultimately um, my first real big media break was I got called up by Newsnight and they said you've written this piece about this this story that's going on tell us about it would you like to come on to Newsnight and I went what no <laughs> and somehow because the producer was very talented producer he managed to persuade me and my my tv debut was on Newsnight being interrogated by Kirsty Walk so really that was the peak and the nightmare of my career. So that that set me off on quite a different trajectory to where I had been mm. and uh, resulted in me writing my first book, which was Love in a Headscarf, so a kind of funny, uh, humorous take on what it means to be a British Muslim woman. And I think I had started to pick up some of the learnings around PR and influence because I thought to myself, well, I could write a book about not being a terrorist but that simply entrenches the idea that you are. Yeah, it reinforces that. And so I, I wrote that book and somehow found myself, after having published the book, 
um, covering a conference at Oxford University, which was keynoted by Miles Young, who was the CEO at Ogilvy at the time. And they were launching their Islamic marketing practice. And he quoted a piece I'd written that was talking about the way that young Muslims try to put their values into the products that they consume and the mm-hmm. way that they engage with brands. And he had quoted me, so I went to talk to him afterwards. And that's how I found myself at Ogilvy. So that was quite a, a curveball in terms of my career because I'd never really thought about whether I could play a role in advertising. And so actually, now that I'm in the industry, I feel like a bit of an outsider insider. And actually, I come to the conclusion that's not necessarily a bad thing mm. because I feel like I see the real value of it. And one thing I always say to people who've been in the industry a long time is this is such a great industry. You mm. can do such amazing things and it's easy to forget that. Yeah. And I think coming at it from quite a different perspective and seeing the power of it, it's going to sound really cheesy, but it is January, so I can say this. Um, <laughs> It's such a great place to work and I genuinely love it and I think it has so much creativity and energy and positivity and you know a lot of people who ask me about what is it like to work in advertising particularly younger people who are thinking about coming into the industry and who in particular come from backgrounds that don't feel are represented by the industry they often say well either it's going to be really miserable to work there or I'm going to feel moral conflict by working in this industry. And I think, actually, if you're really happy in a place and you're creating great things, whatever the industry, that's just very natural. You will wonder how you fit and whether you're going to change. And you will be constantly tussling with those moral questions about, is this the right thing to do? Do I want to work on this? This thing that I think is cutting edge. Is it really great cutting it or is it going in the wrong direction? But those are really great questions. Mm. That's what makes working in this industry make you feel like you're alive. And I kind of wish people would remember that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I totally agree. Equally, I think having such a... um, Funny enough, I was talking to someone recently as a guest on their podcast and I said that I took a very scenic route myself into this industry. But I think I benefited from that because it gives you a broader understanding of life and of the world. So... Um, likewise, and to a you know more significant extent with your own background, a spending time working abroad, I think is priceless. Having done something similar, albeit not in marketing, and also your background in in, in law and and consequently via psychology and into marketing, they're all relevant. They're just not under the umbrella people expect under marketing. So psychology is. I believe, crudely speaking, the psychology is is the study of human behaviour. So how is that not relevant to marketing and advertising and what we do? It's all very relevant. I'm nodding vigorously, which nobody (laughs) who's listening to this can actually pick up. Um, I I just wish a nod had a sound effect to go with it. One of the things I really love, I'm sounding very optimistic. It's good. It's good. Yeah, we can be optimistic. Um, I need to bring out my inner Jack D. Um, (laughs) One of the things I really love about this industry is it's actually a job where you can and in fact should bring your personality to work. Although that does mean you have to be quite brave to to really let yourself go in a way. But people being who they are is where the value comes in this industry. And I think that's quite different to a lot of the industries I've worked in before. So I started off, you know, in law, ostensibly, then in marketing, then in product, then in quite a, you know, hard techie environment. 
and then in publishing and newspapers and ultimately now in advertising. So I've, I've kind of experienced quite a lot of different industries. And this seems to be one where you really can be yourself if you allow yourself, but also makes coming to work such a great thing because you get to meet all these really incredibly interesting people. Yeah. And just listen to their stories, which is great, and see their different perspectives on the world. And as some um, much more distinguished people in the industry will tell you, you can just sit there and go, why? Why do you think that? Why do we have to do it like that? Let's do it differently, which is great. Yeah, and it, and it creates that safe space to ask silly questions and to challenge the norm, which I think is really understated. Agree. More nodding. More, no- more, more nodding. nodding. She's nodding and smiling. <laughs> That's the cafe. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so tell me about Ogilvy Islamic Marketing. So we understand now that you're root into this agency or this um, arm of, of, of Ogilvy. What is, what is it that, that happens here? What is it that you, that you do primarily? So the whole point of selling things to people is to understand who people are and how to connect with them and often to have the products that meet their needs. And actually one of the great overlooked consumer identifiers particularly in Islamic marketing is that Muslims identify themselves through their faith not all the time not as a single homogenous identifier but there are times and places where they want to be recognized as Muslims and we did some initial research and found that over 90% of Muslims said there was something about their faith that affects their consumption and this has really come to light after 9-11 that I was talking about because Muslims are very young. So a third of Muslims are under 15 and two thirds are under 30, which means they've pretty much grown up with the shadow of the war of terror on them and this very heightened spotlight. So I certainly felt it when I was growing up, a lot of the stereotypes, a lot of the judgment, a lot of the misunderstandings. But I think it's it's quite a different experience now and can be quite intense. Mm -hmm. And so for these young Muslims in particular, one segment has decided to wear its identity on its sleeve and say, yep, we're Muslims and we're proud of it. And we want to find a way to bring the best of being Muslim into the best of the modern world. And that's really the target audience that we engage with. And mm-hmm. that I went on subsequently to write a book about called Generation M. Mm-hmm. So young Muslims changing the world. And those are the people that we work with big brands to engage with. So really thinking about who is the audience, what are their defining characteristics and how do you talk to them? And there's a lot of Muslims. There's 1.8 billion Muslims in the world. They spend in excess of $3 trillion every year. And Muslims buy stuff. It's, it's, a, it's a fact. And yet people are not selling to them yeah. in a way that uh, connects to them really strongly. So we've done a number of pieces of research. Um, for example, in the UK, we looked at Ramadan, which is a particularly heightened time of Muslim identity when people are fasting. And two thirds of Muslims said they were really disappointed with the way that brands were engaging with them. We did a separate global study looking at the 12 fastest growing markets in the world, uh, looking particularly at middle class consumers. And again, that same number, around two thirds of Muslims said that they felt that brands weren't responding to their needs. So Mm. there's this huge opportunity to talk to Muslim audiences, but it has to be done in a way that's very insightful and understands the nuance and just gets the the pitching completely right rather than being tone deaf to it. And that's the kind of consultancy and the advice that we offer to brands. I am, firstly, it's a great soundbite, Muslims buy stuff. Um, so I'm going to snip snip it. Yeah. Do you know <laughs> what that? I stand in rooms and I say that, and there's this there's a ripple of laughter, and then everyone's like, "Oh yeah, that's true." It's true. Yeah, they, they do. So Generation M specifically, and actually, 
in marketing in general, so broadly speaking, I've always found uh, the the knife you use to cut segments when we do it by demographic data is quite a blunt knife often. So when we use religion as a way of segmenting, presumably I'd like to think we're at a stage where you then look even closer into that segment, but perhaps we're not. Perhaps the opportunity and the reason why um, your agency exists is that Generation M has been so neglected. Is, that, is it improving? So there's some truth to the way that you articulated the fact that not all Muslims are the same. So this is in terms of political, social and commercial narrative. The point I will make, sorry to cut you off, the point I will make about that is I think there are, I think there's a significantly more consistencies within Generation M than there is saying we're going to slice up this segment and call them millennials, for example, clearly. And your research and your knowledge has obviously demonstrated that already. I think one of the things we forget in our industry is that our our own ideas as practitioners are affected by our social and political context mm. and the things we read and that you know influential people talk about and we bring that into our work. So for example, when it comes to Muslims, there is an overwhelming tide that suggests that all Muslims are the same. There's a kind of homogeneity to it. Mm. um, That they will behave in one particular way, wear one particular kind of clothing and believe one set of beliefs. And yet when we step back as marketers, that is just plainly nonsense or stronger words than that, which I won't use. And if I talk to particularly, you know, clients and brands and marketers who are based in big cities like London, and I say, when you step onto the street, what do you see? And they say, well, we see young Muslim women dressed in trendy clothes. We see young guys wearing, you know, um, fashionable trainers. We see, you know, multi-generational groups. We see this whole range of Muslim audiences. And so the question is, why do we absorb these very homogenous ideas about mm. our target audience? And why do we fail to apply the marketing principles that everybody is steeped in to Muslim audiences or actually more culturally diverse audiences. Mm. And that, I think, is a big question we need to ask ourselves as an industry. And some of those challenges are, well, we're featuring somebody who's from a Muslim background or we're featuring somebody from a particular ethnic background. Well, well done, it's 2020. Um, Mm. If nothing else, there are hundreds of millions of billions of trillions of pounds at stake here. Mm-hmm. And actually what consumers are asking for is the courtesy and the insight and the creativity and the playfulness that we give to other consumers to be directed to them as well. And they're willing to reward that. They're willing to give brands love and engagement and sales. Yeah. There's a fantastic report for everyone listening, um, particularly if you're unaware of it, the great British Ramadan Report. Read it, it's such a great report. I Absolutely, and it is available. On, yeah, it's available to download. Yep, so a quick Google should help you find that. What are, what are the what are the takeaway findings from, from that report then, which echo obviously what we're, we're talking about now? So we wanted to understand what is the Ramadan experience specifically in the UK. So we talked to Muslims around the country to find out when do they start preparing, what are their big concerns during Ramadan, because they're, they're fasting for 30 days. And there's a big celebration at the end. And what do they feel about the way that brands are engaging with us? So my favourite finding, which is 
next very random is that the favorite iftar food the food that you break your fast with for 18 to 24 year olds is chicken and chips <laughs> which to me is very british and that's why we called it the great british ramadan yeah. uh, report but there are lots of trends that we found that brands should be really thinking about in terms of health and wellness in terms of financial planning which was really interesting in terms of how people celebrate the way that they gift their health concerns and the way that the community changes in terms of its dynamic and behaviour during that time. And of course, unsurprisingly, that they want brands to engage with them better and actually think about how the brand can support their experience during Ramadan and for Eid as well to help them achieve the goals that they set themselves as Muslims. There's so many things to like about the chicken, <laughs> chicken <laughs> chips. I don't know whether it's because it's unexpected. I don't know whether it's because it's so brilliantly and, and, and appropriately British. I don't know if it's, I don't know what it is about that that's so wonderful. I, I like it because it just reinforces the fact that everybody is the same on so many levels and, and the, the, the want or the, the, the mistake that people make by grouping people into this one group of Muslims or Christians or, or any other religion or any other demographic is alarmingly silly. I think it's a flagship statement that Muslims aren't what we think they are. Yes. And actually you need to have quite an insightful view of how they feel about themselves and their identity and the way that they interact with the world around them in order to properly serve them. You can't just assume that all Muslims are going to eat samosas at iftar time or all Muslims are going to be wearing long black abaya cloaks because actually that's not the reality of what being Muslim is. And so when you do want to engage, you have to really understand who they are and have an authentic conversation with them. Mm. Also, I love chicken and chips. Yeah, I love chicken and chips. <laughs> Mate, and, do you know what, though? Unless you're 18 to 24, it's probably not the best food to eat after oh, 20 hours of fasting. <laughs> oh, yeah, true. True. I, I imagine that's true. I think chips could unite us because actually, the world, I'm saying, um, <laughs> this is going to sound flippant. And I don't mean to trivialise our conversation at all, but my chips wife are very and I, serious. They, well, they sh- and they are. They used to be taken more seriously. But I was in Italy fairly recently with my wife. And some friends of ours live there, and um, as you would expect, friends with lots of uh, you know Italians. And the the food of choice for Italian teenagers appears to be pizza with chips, as in not on the side. Chips is the topping of the pizza. So we went to this party, and it was a standard party food to roll out this pizza, which was they order pizza by length, which sounds bizarre because in your head you're thinking of a you know circular pizza, mm-hmm. but we all are. But literally, I think it was about a three-metre-long stretch on this table of pizza. And other than tomato base, it just had chips. So chips is the answer. I'll tell you, I'll tell you another ch- story about how chips will unite us. Um, <laughs> I am absolutely not admitting that I watched this programme on this podcast, but um, the, there is the series where Gordon Ramsay goes into restaurants and helps them turn them around to become commercially successful. And there was one episode I caught where he went into what must have been an Indian restaurant in Birmingham and he was looking through the menu and he said to the owner, why are there chips on your menu? And all the people around the country would go, because you need chips with your curry. (laughs) This is is an actual thing. And he made the guy remove the chips from the restaurant's menu. And I was just like hiding behind my eyes. You have to have chips at an Indian restaurant. I'm totally with you. Chips are going to save the world. Amazing. I need some now. I'm hungry. (laughs) 
Um, I've got a couple of listener questions that I'm going to put to you, if I may. Mm. So asking the general public for their opinion, be it on Brexit or boat names, is notoriously fraught with danger, but that's not stopped us asking. So question one is from Paula. <laughs> and Paula says, I read in an interview you gave last year that you were still waiting for the moment for when some exciting industry work would come along and make waves in terms of genuinely engaging with Muslim audiences and Generation M in particular. Is that still the case? I think the most notable work has come from Nike when they launched their sports hijab. And in particular, they did a piece of advertising in the Middle East aimed at Muslim women there. And I think one of the powerful things about that has been the fact that it was clearly aimed at Muslim audiences. It only actually featured one woman who was wearing a headscarf even though the whole product was around that. And what was powerful and notable about it is that it feels inclusive to everybody. It's one of the the bits of feedback I get from brands that are really nervous about talking publicly about Muslims is that either people will feel excluded or they will get backlash. Mm. The first thing I said, well, you want to be on the right side of history, so... Backlash yeah. is, is, is what comes. Yeah. I get lots of it myself. Yeah. But secondly, you can do it in a way that other people will recognise is not for them, but can feel empowered by, can celebrate. And I think that's really great marketing where other people know it may not be for them, but can get what it's trying to do. When it comes to the UK specifically, I'll be honest, I haven't seen anything that's really been that game-changing. You had little tiny things, so I think when Tesco did its Christmas campaign and they featured a Muslim family, I think that was very heartwarming. Mm. And Amazon did a lovely little advert with an imam and a priest and they bought each other knee cushions so they could both pray nicely in their respective churches Mm. and mosques, which I thought was quite nice. But, you know, those were small touches. I think we still have to see a full-on engagement. And I think the first brand to do that will actually make a big, big impact. Mm. Are you surprised there isn't more around Ramadan from from UK brands? Yeah, so we've been talking to a lot of brands about what they can do with Ramadan. Last year, we did a lovely little social media campaign with the United Nations World Food Programme because Ramadan is all about eating, but it's also about charitable giving. So really a perfect combination for a charity that thinks about giving meals. Yeah to children and that was really great fun to do they pushed the boat out and we did something a little bit quirky about the challenges and the humor that actually comes with fasting so people don't often think about Ramadan as a time where Muslims poke fun at themselves you know it's very serious to fast and it's a really spiritual month but also the challenges the physical challenges of fasting can lead to all sorts of crazy and humorous situations and we Mm. wanted to play on that with the, the UN World Food Programme. So that was a nice little social media campaign we did. So we're hoping there's going to be more of that coming. Funny enough, half of the uh, half of the football team I play for are Muslim guys. And during Ramadan, um, there's often a few uh, amusing incidents. Where <laughs> I'll leave well, it there. Your, your colleagues passing uh, out from dehydration. No, but it's but it, to be honest, that, that was uh, particularly eye-opening for me. So I, I'm fortunate to have spent two years living and working in Indonesia. Um, and I was working at a school, and that really opened my eyes to. And I'm talking from a from a base level of like of, of, of complete ignorance and zero understanding of the whole of the celebration of Ramadan, and that that was a, a real eye opener. And subsequently coming back to the UK, 
and seeing it both probably just through football lens of both playing and enjoying and supporting there's a there are many uh, famous uh, muslim premier league footballers and they obviously have a conundrum during ramadan to balance that with their sporting fixtures and i think whilst that might be a one-dimensional view from my lens it equally has raised awareness in my eyes and i'm sure many others i think talking about brand campaigns and football and Ramadan, one of the most unexpected things I've seen was a social media video by Paddy Power, which is obviously a gambling brand, right. which is not typically one that we would encourage no. in terms of engagement with Muslim audiences. I mean, Muslims possibly do gamble, but it's not. Yeah. It's something that is, is traditionally forbidden. And they had this really hilarious, I have to say, whoever wrote it did a great job of two guys sitting around discussing whether Mo Salah would be fasting during, um, I think it was the World Cup, Mm. and whether he would be fasting before or after sunset and what that would mean for his play if he was travelling or not, which seemed a really unexpected brand to talk about Ramadan. But just goes to show that you can talk about Ramadan and you can talk about Muslim engagement, um, Muslim participation in ways that are engaging and funny mm. and actually aimed at a very mainstream audience. And you can, you know, assert your brand's tone and personality through that, even if it's quite unexpected. Yeah, that, that, that's certainly unexpected. Paddy yeah, <laughs> not sure if it increased uh, bets or not. But, no, um, well, let's hope it didn't. Um, that's another conversation. Uh, question series from Aaron, and he asks... What is your routine and requirements for a productive writing process? And do you think you will write another book? So I have another book coming out, which is totally different. It's The Extraordinary Life of Serena Williams, which is coming out later this year, which I'm quite excited about. Um, So that's a little bit of a departure. In terms of writing, I do a weekly column for a newspaper. Mm -hmm. And that's quite challenging because you have to have a strong opinion every week. Every week, on demand. Um, And actually, that's a lot harder than it sounds. But it's good to have a challenge because it keeps you thinking about what's happening in the world. And I absolutely, definitely want to write another grown-up book. But there's a full-time job. There's a newspaper column. There is two little kids... Mm -hmm. Who still need a lot of mommy time and two ageing parents who also need a bit of love and care. So the thing that I find hardest is I find squishing creativity into 20 minute slots incredibly difficult mm. to the fact that it's near impossible. Um, so, so clearing space to write a book is something that is my number one challenge right now and do you mean does anyone want to give me a million pounds to do that answers on a postcard please so do you mean physically or mentally or both clearing space because presumably your headspace must be very cluttered if you're juggling so much it's it's clearing space because for me creativity is something that take i need to marinate in my thinking and my ideas and the way that I write or produce ideas is I will look like I'm doing absolutely nothing for the first 75% of the time I've got, which might include sitting watching mindless TV or 
tidying up. It's always a good time to tidy up when you're trying to have an idea because it's a good distraction. And then I'll be frantically creating for the last 25% mm. of the time I have available. But when you have lots of other priorities, it can be quite hard to sure. clear enough time to do that. And actually one of the challenges when you have other people around you who don't really get that creative process, mm that's quite difficult to do as well because when you're sitting watching mindless tv or youtube videos or playing solitaire it is actually work i promise i promise <laughs> it, it, i promise my husband and my boss it is actually work um but it doesn't look like it although there are some interesting thoughts i, I see in some advertising agencies about kind of allowing people that time just to kind of make space for themselves and even though it doesn't look like work it is mm. actually work creativity is a very elusive and slippery thing it really is, and the process is really hard to explain in a way that makes sense logically. So I think whether it's solitaire or mind-numbing TV, I think whatever it takes to preoccupy yourself to then allow your subconscious brain to breathe and think is, is when, one of the few consistencies. When I was writing Generation M, I do remember spending a lot of time on the countdown numbers game. Ah, I, I love liked. the countdown numbers game. I'm a bit of a maths geek at heart. I could get rid of the word one, yeah. just go with numbers. Ah, I've got an app that I'll show you after recording, oh, which is essentially okay. the countdown send a link out to everyone. <laughs> well, we'll link to it in the episode. The final part of the interview then, Shalina, is our four pertinent poses that we put to all of our guests. Question one is, what advice would you give to your younger self? I'm scrunching my face at this question. <laughs> you may have to go to question two. Um, if any, if any, you may, you may feel like it's... I wish I'd discovered creativity earlier or had the confidence in it. Um, I did lots of fun, exciting things in my 20s, so I think I was pretty good on that. I think I would tell myself to do even more, absolutely pack my days, because one of the things I discovered after having children is that your efficiency before children is like 10% compared to efficiency after children. And mm. I can do more in an hour now than I could before children than I could in a day or two. So as a parent, which not everybody is, just borrow a child for a month <laughs> and just see your productivity <laughs> skyrocket after that. Um, I think have fun. Just have as, you know, I'd say just have as much experience as you can. Oh, I, 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 that's just like a cheat. I don't like that question. Okay, cool. Am I allowed to say that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I don't not? like that question. Fine. I don't like it either. Scrap that. <laughs> Scrap that. Funnily enough, I gave similar advice recently uh, on a podcast called All Good Copy, which I will proudly plug now. And my tips to anyone listening, certainly agency heads listening, was hire mums for that very reason, that coming back to agency life after having kids, project managing is a breeze compared to agency. <laughs> it's such a breeze. So I think... Um, I think there's wise words, wise words there. If you could banish one thing from the industry, what would it be and why? Can I introduce something rather than banish something? Yeah, look, why not? Yeah, yeah of course. I'm, we're, we're all optimistic and positive. Um, instead of people responding, disagreeing with you, they have to instead say, tell me more about your idea. That'd be much more fruitful. Nicer as well. We would kind of be more productive and, and <clears throat> enjoyable. There's a lovely story. I'm not going to do it justice now, so I'm just going to um, give a very short version. But there's a wonderful blog I read a long time ago about a very successful creative guy 
and he found himself increasingly in situations where there would be a conflict of opinion. And instead of doing what you're probably referring to as just a flat binary, I disagree with you, he actually went to the length of embroidering in, on the inside pocket of all of his blazers, they might be right. And whenever <laughs> he found himself in that situation, he would look inside his blazer and it would almost allow his head to say to them, tell me more, or, or just explore more the other person's opinion, which I thought was, was Can beautiful. Can you imagine if he was sitting at your meeting and he just kept opening <laughs> his blazer? Yeah, that's true. But do you know true. what, talking about Ramadan, I, I do that sometimes because actually people underestimate the challenge of... In Ramadan, you're supposed to try and be a better person, but you're also quite hangry mm. because you haven't eaten or drunk anything. And so actually many years if you check my hands during ramadan i'll actually have written on my index finger on the inside the words be nice (laughs) just to remind myself that that is the purpose of what i'm doing so i i I think there's something to be said about giving yourself a little instructive where you can keep referring it to every day yeah awesome question three any books that you can recommend to our listeners aside from your own which we'll obviously link to in this episode's listing so so rory and i are colleagues and so he he and i did a book swap i gave him a generation m and he gave me an alchemy Uh, fantastic i got i think he got a better deal to be honest (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so so then the the, the, well the fourth question then shalina is we always dedicate every episode to someone Mm -hmm. and we bestow that honor to our guest so would you dedicate this episode to somebody I'd like to dedicate this episode to my mum. She has given me the confidence to be who I am and thinks that no matter what I do, I am amazing. Mm. Even though I'm not entirely sure she knows what I do. No. <laughs> Comes up a lot with guests, actually. I know that whatever I do, it's because she was there for me. And this is for her. And as... My parents grow older. Let's hope I'm there for them. Absolutely. That's a, that's a lovely dedication. Can I ask your mother's name? Mariam. Mariam. So this episode is proudly dedicated to Mariam. Um, so as a final call to action, everyone listening can head over to calltoaction.co. We'll share everything we have discussed, including the Great Ramadan uh, report, links to Shalina's books, uh, with luck to her Serena Williams books, which is we've now learned is on the horizon. How else can people get more Shalina Jam Mohammed? There is loads on Twitter. I do lots on Twitter. If you want stories about my cute kids, there's Facebook <laughs> and more interesting articles. And I'm trying out Instagram, but I think I think Twitter's more for me as a writer. Mm. Too many pictures on Instagram. For yeah, me. I agree. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, guys. Yeah, thank you everyone for listening. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do share and review the podcast. Keep our guest questions and guest requests coming in. To get in touch, it's easy to find Gasp online. You can check out CTA Pod on Instagram or old schoolers can email hello at calltoaction.co. And I try, and I try.